It looks like we're going to have a third session on evil spirits, which, given the fact I'm not intending to address that subject comprehensively, just shows you how much there is to say just about the evidences for their existence. Let me ask something that I asked in another discussion, but I've yet to have answered. If the evil spirits in the days of Jesus were just the spirits of humans who appear to be possessed by them, their own mental illnesses or whatever the case might be, why do they seem to have knowledge about things, like about who Jesus really is, for example, that no other humans appear to have had? And certainly we wouldn't expect carnal humans. And on top of that, carnal humans who apparently, according to some, are being oppressed with mental conditions seem to have. Why is it that many of them, again, who according to some are just experiencing human mental conditions, appear to have insights into Jesus' true identity and power that even his own disciples didn't fully have at this time, and those who weren't accepting him certainly didn't have? I'll probably talk about some of these verses in more detail in a moment, but you can find examples of this in Matthew 8, 32 to 34, Mark 1, 23 to 28, 1, 32 to 39, 3, 10 to 12, Acts 16, 16 to 24, 19, 13 to 20, James 2, 19. And then in some of the parallel examples in the Gospels of some of the Gospel passages I gave you. The account we see in Mark 5, which is paralleled in Matthew 8, occurs eight chapters before Peter stated under the anointing of God what Christ's identity was, that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. But eight chapters before Peter said that, an evil spirit clearly recognized Jesus and appealed to him when it said, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Surely, a mentally ill carnal human being, who wasn't even one of Jesus' disciples, wouldn't have this kind of insight, but a supernatural spirit being certainly would. Or what about the statement in Mark one twenty four, when the spirits say, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. Why would we come up with the conclusion that a mentally ill human individual somehow had this significant insight into Jesus' true identity when most of the sane folks certainly didn't, but a supernatural spirit being would? Or what about the statement just a few verses later in Mark 1.34 when it says that he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases and cast out many devils and suffered not the devils to speak because they knew him. He didn't permit the devils to speak because they knew him. That's not something that would be true of mentally ill humans. That's like saying he didn't allow someone's mental condition to reveal the reality of who he was. Why would their mental condition reveal his reality? How would somebody mentally ill, who according to those who believe that, were mentally ill because of their own carnal nature, would somehow have some deeper insight than anyone else did at that time into who Jesus was and would require him to command them not to reveal who he was? And by the way, how do you command mental illness not to declare who you are? I realize how facetious that is, but that is literally what people are saying if they believe these evil spirits are just mental illnesses. Or what about the unclean spirits in Mark 3, 11 to 12? It says, unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, thou art the son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. How and why would mentally ill human beings have some deeper spiritual insight into who Jesus was that was so significant that he would command them not to make him known? But again, supernatural spirit beings would have that insight. Or what about the devils in James 2.19? When James says, thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well, the devils also believe and tremble. That's the exact same Greek word daimonion that we were talking about in the last class. This translated devils here in the King James Version. 
that is the word that's used for supernatural entities and is the word that is used to describe those entities that Jesus was casting out in the Gospels. What rational reason would there be to say that mentally ill people know that there is one God and tremble at that knowledge? Of course, that's not what this is referring to. So these devils have to be something different. And they're the very same group, daimonian, that are the ones being cast out in the Gospels. Now, I wouldn't be surprised if someone tried to reinvent the meaning of the word devils here in this statement, as often is the case when people can't accept what the Bible says, to refer to false prophets or devilish human beings or something else. But that's exactly why we accuse those who believe the devil's the flesh of arbitrary and inconsistent interpretation. The devils all through the Gospels that are being cast out are the very same devils, the very same Greek word daimonion, here that tremble at the knowledge of God's singular sovereign position. These are spirit beings who, due to their conception of who the true God is, know him and fear him. If the view of those who believe the devil's the flesh is true, these spirits and devils are just mental conditions, why would people with mental conditions be more likely to believe and tremble in their knowledge of God? And by the way, you can't squirm out of that conclusion by arguing these devils here are just wicked men that recognize God. No, this is the exact same word used for the devils cast out of people in the gospel. So if your argument is that those devils, those evil spirits, which both the words are used for the same thing, are referring to mental and emotional conditions in carnal people, then you'd have to say it's the same here. And if you're not willing to say that, you are proving how arbitrary and inconsistent your method of interpretation is. Our understanding of this is neither arbitrary nor inconsistent. The word daimon in Greek refers to a supernatural entity. It almost always referred to a supernatural entity, as we talked about last time. And the only time it ever had anything to do with mental or emotional conditions is when it was a supernatural entity causing mental or emotional conditions, not the conditions themselves. On top of that, we are entirely consistent in our understanding of those words. When we see the word daimon here, that's devils in James, we assume it's the very same spiritual entities that the word daimon is describing in the Gospels, which is the definition of being consistent. We don't have to change its meaning from one passage to the next, like those who believe differently do with the titles for Satan and the devil and evil spirits, devils, demons. They change the meaning of them from one passage to the next because it's impossible to be consistent with that interpretation. So it's clear to me that these evil spirits, devils, knew who Jesus was and with a degree of insight that very few human beings, if any, in that day had at that time. That is completely astonishing, and I think it's beyond reason if these were just human individuals' mental illnesses that are what are being referred to as devils or evil spirits here that oppressed or possessed them. But that kind of description is, once again, completely consistent if these are supernatural spirit beings. A supernatural entity that's an evil spirit can affect a human individual with a mental or emotional condition. Sometimes a mental condition is just a mental condition, and there's no external evil spirit involved. And sometimes it's a man's own spirit that has developed that condition in him. But sometimes there is an external entity that is an evil spirit being, a supernatural entity that's causing or aggravating what appears to be a mental condition, evil thoughts, etc. And a mental condition or lowered inhibition through the intake of some kind of substance that would cause somebody to be in a lowered state of inhibitions can create a potential opening for the work of that kind of an external evil spirit. So I think it's one of the most ill-considered claims to declare that all evil spirits are merely mental conditions. As I said in our last session, millions of clearly mentally stable individuals, many of whom are spirit-filled and godly believers, have had experiences with what they are certain were external evil spirits. 
And in addition to the simple linguistic fact that daimon and daimonian are referring to external spirit beings, we see, as I just demonstrated, that many of the individuals with evil spirits in the biblical record demonstrated a knowledge of Christ that goes well beyond the common human knowledge people in his day had of who he was and what he was doing. Only someone who is entirely blinded by their biases would ignore these kind of simple facts that incontrovertibly point to the existence of evil spirits as supernatural entities. I briefly mentioned in the last class some of the ways that Jesus interacted with some of these evil spirits. I want to touch on that again and give just a little bit more detail on that. The kind of things Jesus said to and said about these demons and evil spirits and what they said to him and about him But before we even get into the issue of what Jesus said to and about evil spirits and what they might have said to and about him, we ought to consider the fact that they said anything at all. The evil spirits or demons Jesus interacted with are referred to as speaking to him and he responds back to them. If evil spirits were just mental and emotional conditions in a human being, it would be nonsensical to say that you're talking to the mental or emotional condition and it's talking back. You would just say you're talking to the man, to the person. But that's not how these interactions are described. They're clearly conversations between Jesus and an entity or entities that are referred to as demons or evil spirits. And the people he's referred to as talking to are removed from the conversation at some point. Which means if you believe that they're a mental condition, you can't say he's talking to the person because the person's not removed. It's the mental condition, which means if you do think it's a mental condition, he'd have to be talking to the mental condition and not the person. Because if you're having a conversation with someone and then using the very same language, you're having a conversation with an evil spirit, and then you cast the evil spirit out, you only have three choices. Only one of which makes any sense, by the way. The first choice is that if this is a mental or emotional condition, you were just talking to the man. But that would make no sense because the man didn't get cast out. It was the mental condition that got cast out. The second choice would be that you're talking to the mental condition and you cast the mental condition out, which would make no sense because why would you be having a conversation with a mental condition as if it's a person you can have a conversation with? The third option is the only reasonable and truly biblical option, and that is that Jesus was having a conversation with an evil spirit that he removed. And it wasn't the man himself he was having a conversation with because the man wasn't removed. And he wasn't having an imaginary conversation with something that isn't a person at all. He was having a conversation with a personal entity who he removed from the environment at the end of that conversation. There's absolutely no reason for Jesus to have a conversation with a mental or emotional condition. And as I said before, it would be highly misleading and borderline deceptive for him or the writers of the Bible to describe mental and emotional conditions in this way if that is what evil spirits and demons actually are. As I said earlier in one of the earlier classes, they could have used a variety of other terms for them. There's no reason to use the terminology that is used for supernatural beings that anyone in that day would assume is talking about supernatural beings unless you were trying to confuse them or deceive them. And I don't think Jesus was trying to do either thing. And we've seen already that the Hebrew and Greek terms for evil spirits and demons were almost always, if not always, during this time, referring to supernatural beings and not to a mental or emotional issues, other than things the supernatural beings were causing that were mental or emotional issues. And a proper understanding of those Greek terms clearly reveals it's not the spirit or demon that's the mental or emotional condition that a person's struggling with. They're the instigators, in many cases, of those conditions, not the conditions themselves. It's like someone who's a carrier of a disease who's passing it on to others. They're not the disease, they're the carrier. Or it's like someone who's an influencer or a tempter of others with ideas or thoughts that are their ideas and thoughts. 
They're not the ideas or temptations that they're trying to convince someone of, though. They are the individual that is attempting to do the convincing or attempting to influence the person with those ideas or temptations. As I noted just a few minutes ago, evil spirits and devils described as possessing human beings demonstrated a knowledge of the identity of Christ and his spiritual purpose, and even of their own future judgment by him that would seem unlikely, if not impossible, for the human beings they were possessing to know. How could carnal human beings, in a supposedly mentally deranged state that originated within themselves and not supposedly caused by any external agency or agent, have a clearer knowledge of who Jesus was and what his purpose was than the vast majority of humans in that day? I gave you a few examples, but without reading these or going into detail, let me give you a list. Matthew 8.29 and Mark 5.7 is where the spirits cry out and declare that Jesus is the Son of God or the Son of the Most High God, showing a supernatural knowledge not only of Jesus' identity, then they ask him if he's come to torture them or torment them before the time, which shows a supernatural knowledge not only of his identity, but in regard to a time of future judgment for beings of this kind, none of which would make a bit of sense if this was just an emotional or mental condition. Mark 1.23-25, once again you see these evil spirits asking Jesus if he's come to destroy them and declaring that they know who he is, that he's the Holy One of God. And Jesus silences them, which demonstrates a supernatural knowledge only of his identity, but again references a time of future judgment of evil spirits that would seem insensible for a mental condition to cause someone to say. Luke 4.33-35 is a similar example of that. Mark 1.34 and Luke 4.41 both have devils or evil spirits speaking about who Jesus is, calling him Christ, the Son of God. And in both cases, he silences them and rebukes them and forbids them from speaking. Again, showing a supernatural knowledge of Jesus' identity that he forbids them to speak about and reveal. Surely, mentally ill human beings didn't have the kind of spiritual insight into his identity and purpose that would necessitate him silencing them so they wouldn't reveal it but a supernatural entity certainly would. Then Mark 3, 11 to 12, evil spirits refer to him as a son of God. And again, he charges them that they should not make him known. And then finally, James two nineteen that we referred to earlier when it says the devils also believe and tremble. There is no reason to believe that James is comparing people who are sane and in a relationship with the Lord with those who are insane, mentally deranged, and claiming that both the sane and insane believe in the correct identity of God and fear him. Someone who's not sane isn't likely to have a correct conception of God. Instead, this is just talking about the fact that supernatural evil entities do know who the true God is and they do fear him. And I already addressed some of the rebuttals some might make to that and why they are impossible. There are a number of other reasons you could argue for the existence of evil spirits, but for the sake of time and the fact that we've already taken a little more time with this subject than I intended to, I do want to talk about one other element that is a support evidence, and that is the experiences people have had and encounters they've had with evil spirits and with supernatural activity that demonstrates there is something evil outside of us. And I mean outside of the human race, outside of the human terrestrial realm. As I've mentioned in the last class, I have had a number of experiences in my life with what I am certain were supernatural entities or exercises of supernatural power that were evil and not good. There's no doubt that what I was encountering were not righteous angels or celestial beings. For one thing, the feeling of evil associated with them was palpable in the room or location where I was at that you could feel a presence and covering of evil. 
not just of fear, as I sometimes hear people argue, they say, well, you're just feeling a fear because it could have been an angel of God and people felt fear. No, I'm not talking about fear of something strange or different. I'm talking about a feeling of evil and malignancy, something that is trying to hurt you. That's very different. No one who has experienced something like that in a lucid state, not while they're sleeping and having a dream, which you could imagine all kinds of things in a dream, or not in some kind of drug state or under the influence of something, but in a completely lucid state, would believe it's a figment of their imagination or just a mental condition, especially if there were supernatural activities associated with that experience, like hearing a voice or seeing something or physical activity beyond human ability, or something being moved or occurring without anyone touching it or causing it to move or to happen. And I've experienced some of these things that were very distinctly supernatural activities in the presence of multiple other individuals who also experienced them, which would be nearly impossible if it was just one person's mental or emotional conditions, which by itself is an experiential argument that in my opinion just erases the whole argument that this is mental or emotional conditions. There are certainly many folks who do struggle with mental and emotional conditions, and they can have all kinds of delusions and see all kinds of things or think they're hearing things that are not there. And I believe it is possible their conditions can be confused with the work of evil spirits. They might think it is an evil spirit when it's not. But that fact is not sufficient to explain away the reality of some of the encounters I have had and many others have had, millions throughout history, with evil spirits and the description that we see of them in the scripture. As I referenced a moment ago, I actually had somebody ask me if I didn't think that some of the things I had experienced were an angel of God and told me that probably what I was feeling was just the feeling of being in the presence of a spiritual being. And since I didn't know what its ultimate purpose was, I was probably just feeling fear. I already explained why I don't think that's the case. That wouldn't be the same thing as a spirit being interacting with someone in a way that inspires terror and a feeling of malignancy or is attempting to influence them to have evil thoughts or feelings. You do not see righteous celestial angels influencing people to have evil thoughts or desires. But I have been in the presence of things that have done that very thing. And a clear and unquestionable feeling of moral evil being present and malice towards you being present is entirely different than how the presence of a righteous angel feels. By moral evil, I'm talking about something that God or any righteous angel would never communicate or convey. By malice, I'm not just talking about fear based on the fact that you're encountering something that's other that's powerful, that's supernatural. I'm talking about an awareness, not only that something's present that could do you harm, but that it would take pleasure in doing you harm and would like to do you harm. Again, unless we're talking about a very wicked human being who God is sending an angel to bring judgment upon, that is simply not the type of feeling we would associate with a righteous angel, especially if the person feeling that malice and moral evil is trying to resist it and to do what's right. God does not attempt to subvert us, as Lamentations 3.36 says, which means to entrap us into doing moral evil. God is not trying to entrap someone into doing moral evil, like you would send an angel to try to get somebody to do evil, knowing that they're likely to fail. That is not what God is doing. God can allow evil angels to do it, but he certainly wouldn't send a righteous angel to do it. And his goal in doing so would not be to entrap you, it would be to test you. The Hebrew word avath that is translated subvert in Lamentations 3.36 when it says to subvert a man and his cause the Lord approveth not means to pervert or make crooked. Many of the experiences I've been mentioning are examples of just that. The presence of a being that is attempting to subvert, pervert, or make your path crooked. 
anyone experiencing those things recognizes clearly that they are at least in part an attempt to influence their thinking and actions that cause them to reject God, to reject his will, his purpose, or even his existence. God is not the author of that kind of influence. If he were, he would be doing exactly what this verse says that he does not approve of, entrapping us into doing evil, or at the very least, subverting us from serving him. It's very different to think of someone testing a human being and going to them and saying, are you going to serve God? Or here's your options, A or B. It's entirely different and reveals the evil nature of an individual when they try to influence you to choose the evil option, which is exactly what we see happening with the serpent in the garden. I'm sure God knew the serpent was going into the garden, and God may have even intended the serpent to test Adam and Eve. But to try to influence them to do evil is something that came out of the heart of the serpent, not, in my humble opinion, out of the heart of God. God does not approve of subverting a man from his cause, and not his cause to do evil. God certainly would subvert you from doing that. It's talking about your cause to want to do right. So if a spirit being attempts to subvert a man from believing in God or doing the right things, when the man really wants to believe in God and wants to do the right things, that spirit being cannot have been directed to do so by God. That means that if we see any spirit being doing something like that, it has to be a morally perverted creature. God does permit evil spirits, like the lying spirit we see in 1 Kings 22, to influence and affect wicked men who are under his judgment. But he doesn't send, nor do I believe he would allow, a righteous angel to try to turn good men from their righteousness. It would be entirely against the nature of a righteous angel to try to turn a righteous man, or at least one that's genuinely desiring to be righteous, to unrighteousness. Simple logic and biblically consistent interpretation demand that this type of action would be the work of an unrighteous, evil angel or spirit being. Which is exactly what we see in 1 Kings 22 that I mentioned. As to the question of whether or not it was a celestial angel, which is exactly how the individual asked the question of me, I didn't say that it wasn't an angel. I just said it wasn't a righteous angel because its communication and interaction was clearly intended to bring about evil thoughts and actions on my part and to lead me away from God. And when I resisted it in the spirit of God and in the authority of Christ, it desisted from those attempts. That type of interaction would be insensible for a good or righteous angel. I have been in the presence of a righteous angel that struck fear in me, but that presence didn't bring a feeling of evil and darkness with it like these other experiences I'm referring to. And I believe I know the difference between a good feeling and an evil feeling. Not just fear or trepidation, which may not feel good, but it may be instigated by something that is good, like God or an angel, but malice and dark thoughts that pull you towards the wrong things. Why would a good angel be doing anything that would require you to command it to depart in the name of the Lord? And that is exactly what I have had to do in a few cases in my life when I felt that malice surrounding me. I imagine we've all been in environments where a feeling of evil was palpable, a place where some terrible wickedness was going on or maybe even had gone on. That feeling, if you felt it, is nothing like the fear that's associated with a godly supernatural being. But fear is only one of the feelings associated with these types of experiences I'm talking about. A feeling of being in the presence of something evil and the many different ways that kind of feeling can manifest is something very different from the feeling of being in the presence of something that is more powerful than you, but that is not malignant in nature. It's not evil, not morally opposed to you or trying to destroy you. I have, as I believe most of us probably have, been in the presence of other human beings who were bent on doing some terrible evil, maybe in general or maybe specifically against me or who were deeply perverted by sin in their thinking and feelings, and you could tell just being around them 
you could feel that from their presence. It may not have been aimed at me personally, and I may have felt no personal fear, either due to the fact that I wasn't intimidated by them or that I knew I wasn't the object of their anger, but I did feel a tangible evil around them. The fact that I wasn't intimidated by them nullifies my confusing that feeling with personal fear, which is exactly what it would be if we're talking about a good angel. That would be fear based on intimidation or respect. Neither intimidation nor respect were involved in some of the experiences that I had. It was just a tangible feeling of evil. And that's exactly the feeling that I've encountered when I felt that type of supernatural presence. Fear might have been involved, but it also included a consciousness of being in the presence of evil. Not just evil in the sense of something bad that might happen to me, but moral perversity and spiritual darkness. As I said, I've been in the presence of a good angel, and there is a very distinct difference between the feeling of being in the presence of an angel of God and the feeling I just described. I was rescued from drowning by an angel as a child, and there were two other individuals who were present and witnessed the event. There was a fear that was based on a number of factors that I felt, but it was nothing like the fear and feeling of evil and moral perversity that I have felt in other opposite types of experiences. The entities were different in every way. The only similarity of feeling in their presence was an otherness that could certainly generate fear, whether they were good or evil, but there was a dramatically different feeling of one versus the other. The first was like being in the presence of a benevolent but powerful authority figure that certainly could bring judgment on you if you were doing wrong, but the second was like being in the presence of a serial killer. I do agree that an encounter with an unknown being that is something other can produce fear, but it's not the feeling I'm talking about. I'm talking about a feeling of evil and personal malice that is far different than simple fear of the unknown or of something supernatural or something just powerful or different that's frightening in that way. Those are very different feelings. The problem is that some simply cannot accept that any spirit being could intend moral evil, or at least they couldn't be morally evil in their nature. And thus, they have to keep coming back to the feeling that so many have experienced when they've encountered something that appears to be supernatural and explain that if there was something supernatural, it would just have to be us feeling a fear because a good spirit being was present. I'm going to repeat what I've said already, but fear is not the issue. A feeling of moral depravity and wickedness is. Those who hold those views might want to try to shift the focus to the feelings we felt when encountering a spirit being of that kind to just being the product of fear, but that is simply not possible. It's not fear of the unknown or something other that's the only thing that was present in these encounters. It was a tangible consciousness of the presence of something evil. And if someone is unable or unwilling to comprehend the existence of an evil spirit being, they have to try to redefine any experiences we might have had as either being some mental derangement on our part or as being an experience with someone that's actually a good being that we are just afraid of. But I do believe I wouldn't mistake something that is foreign with something that is evil in that way. I have, as many, many have, experienced things that are not only supernaturally other, but which are supernaturally evil. And that only leaves us with two choices. You either have to assume that all of the many millions of individuals who've had those kind of experiences throughout history are mentally ill, including me. So I guess your conception of me would have to be that I'm mentally deranged since I've had these experiences. I wouldn't be the only one. You'd have to include many other ministers and saints among our body of churches in that category. Regardless, by the way, of how rational and emotionally balanced we might appear to be, and I pray spiritual as well, 
or you're going to have to admit that there is supernatural activity that you have either not experienced or that you've blinded yourself to by your doctrinal biases. And by the way, I've actually heard some say if evil spirits were real and you felt them, I would have felt them too, and I've never felt them. That wouldn't demonstrate anything other than the fact that if they are real, as we believe, they are probably intelligent enough to realize that if you don't even believe they're there, there's no point in them revealing themselves to you. They can do whatever they want without you even realizing they're present. Wouldn't that be more beneficial for them, for you not to believe they're real? Of course it would. Surely, no one is going to try to make the argument, after interacting with so many of us who have had these types of experiences, and who appear to be mentally stable, men and women of God, and who appear to be spiritual in mind, is actually mentally deranged. And only those who haven't had these experiences are truly sane and truly spiritual. I think if that is the approach you have taken, you might want to consider that a bit more carefully. I'll give you one of the examples of the experiences I had to show you why I believe it was genuine and real. When I was younger, in my teens, and I was out of church at the time, and that's an important point I'll come back to, I was alone in the house and woke up one night with a feeling of terrible evil all around me. All the lights were out in the house, and I wasn't afraid of the dark. I wasn't afraid of much of anything at that point in my life. I was foolhardy, if anything. I was sleeping on the second floor. I got out of bed and walked to the top of the stairs and went down to the first floor. I could tangibly feel someone was in the house. And anyone that has ever had that experience knows exactly what it feels like when you know someone or something is present. We had a landing halfway down the stairs where the stairs went down and then there was a landing and then they turned and went down the rest of the way. And when I got to the top of the stairs, I turned on the light over the stairs. I was fully awake, fully lucid, and by the way, was not under the influence of any drug or alcohol or anything else. I have never been someone who tampered with drugs or used alcohol, so I wasn't under the influence of anything. I was completely awake, and I saw standing on the landing halfway up a man who was looking at me with the most evil expression of malice, blended with a look of almost mocking sarcasm that I don't even have the words to describe but was one of the most terrible combinations of things I've ever seen in an individual's expression. A terrible feeling washed over me that felt like something pressing in on me, and I felt the strongest impression, almost overwhelmingly, that there was no God or any other being that could deliver me from this individual. And it hit me so powerfully, it almost felt like my heart would stop. And as I mentioned a moment ago, at that point in my life, I was a very tough and very hardened individual, would fight almost anyone, afraid of no one, living in the midst of gangs, carrying a gun all the time in constant danger, and sometimes so inured, so cauterized to feeling fear that you might say, as I said earlier, that I was foolhardy. I wasn't really afraid of anything. But when I had this experience, I knew without the slightest doubt that this individual was so powerful in a supernatural sense that there was nothing I could have done to fight against them. And I knew that that individual was the source of that feeling, like he was sending it to me, putting it in my mind. The stronger it came over me, the more that his mocking, sardonic, arrogant smile got bigger and bigger, as if he knew the effect he was having on me. I closed my eyes, which took courage all by itself when you've got somebody about five or six steps away from you, and I cried out to God for help, despite the fact that I wasn't even in any kind of a right relationship with him at that time. I wasn't going to church. I had rejected my relationship with him. But down in my heart, a seed had been planted through my childhood growing up in the church that I knew in a moment like that there was no other place to turn. 
When I opened my eyes again, a moment later, the bean was gone. I searched the entire house from top to bottom, and every door and window was locked from the inside. But I want to point out again, I was wide awake, completely lucid, had never been under the influence of alcohol or any kind of drug of any kind, and had this experience. I would imagine if you spend any amount of time with me, you would conclude I am in my right mind. If you don't agree with my doctrine, especially on this issue, you might claim I'm not in my right mind, but I am completely sane. I'm not the prisoner of some psychosis. And I did have this very lucid, very clear and undeniable experience. Now, that was only one of several experiences I had with that very same being, looked exactly the same, had the same feeling when they appeared to me. And each time I encountered him, that experience included an almost overwhelming pressure to reject God's reality and any relationship with him. It was exactly the opposite of what God himself would direct someone to experience. It was a feeling of undeniable evil and a hatred for God and God's people. God delivered me from it or I wouldn't be here today. And no amount of argument could ever convince me that it wasn't real. After all, as I've quoted already, a man with an experience is not at the mercy of mere arguments, especially when that experience is undeniable. One of the very obvious problems with those who do not believe in the presence of evil spirits is that they have to deny or completely ignore the numerous testimonies of people who have not just had a bad feeling in the presence of what they believe is an evil spirit, like impending judgment was coming on them, but who felt something morally evil pulling them toward moral evil, toward rejecting God or God's existence or God's will for their lives. I'm talking about moral evil and an influencing pressure to reject God, which if it is coming from somewhere outside of you and no other person is visibly present would have to be coming from a supernatural agent. And if you see a supernatural agent who disappears, like in the case of what I saw, that is even clearer evidence. But some people's doctrinal biases cause them to conflate those two things where they don't want to accept that there could be a feeling of moral evil. So they try to reimagine that it's just general fear or they persistently ignore the descriptions of the different experiences people have had because they don't fit with their presuppositional worldview. Their worldview is there cannot be evil spirits. And I'm sorry if they don't believe this is what they've done, but they have basically taken that belief and used it like whiteout over many parts of the scripture where they overwrite or erase things in the scripture that say anything that could prove there's evil spirits. It isn't that they started with the Bible because the Bible never says there are not evil spirits, never says there aren't evil supernatural beings. It infers in many places that there are. So the only way they could have come up with that conclusion is to come up with that conclusion extra biblically and then try to force it upon the testimony of the Bible. It's so obvious if you think it through. I can give many scriptures that appear to be describing evil spirits in the Bible, but they can't give you one scripture that says there are no such thing as evil spirits, or there are no evil celestial beings. Which one of us is actually starting with the Bible, and then attempting to understand it, and which one of us is actually starting with our own prejudiced view that is found nowhere in the Bible, and attempting to make the Bible support it? It's not hard to see when you examine yourself and where the origins of your ideas have come from. Some people's presuppositions about what can and cannot be true regarding evil spirits, which are in no way based on any biblical evidence that states that or even expresses it, force them to keep attacking a straw man that they've made for themselves. When we describe experiences that many millions of people have had throughout history that include a darkness, moral depravity, and a pressure to reject God and God's will, 
that would never be feelings associated with the spirit God has sent, and certainly aren't the descriptions of what someone would feel in the atmosphere of a holy angel, they have to deny those experiences entirely, no matter how strongly witnessed to they were, or they have to try to come up with the strange argument that it was actually a righteous angel. In the case of this issue, I believe the experiences that we have had are a very strong supporting argument for our belief. And that argument is based on far greater biblical and contextual consistency in our interpretation. And the only proper use of language and grammar in terms of how the Bible uses the language and grammar, as I said, the word for demons would only have meant supernatural beings to them in their day. Yes, they can cause mental and emotional conditions, but they are not the condition. They're the cause of the condition. They're the agent that causes the condition. So not only do we believe that evil spirits are referred to many times in the Bible in terms that would seem to strongly imply they are personal entities, but are treated as personal entities. You see by Jesus and others who have conversations with the spirit when if it was the person they were having the conversation with, it should have just said that. He told the man such and such. Instead, they have conversations with the spirits, which would be insensible if the spirit was not something separate from the individual. But we also have the very strong and very large number of experiences that are witnesses, and some of those are far beyond the possibility of personal subjectivity, especially when multiple other persons experience them at the same time as well. I have been in a room with multiple other people. When a door completely opened on its own, we watched the handle turn, not just wind somewhere or some air current that we just weren't aware of moving, but the door handle turning and opening and a terrible feeling of evil washed into the room as the door swung open. That all of us sat and looked at, there were probably five of us in the room that saw the door handle turning. Nothing could have moved that door handle that wasn't supernatural. And it did not just bring a feeling of fear and trepidation that a righteous angel had just arrived. It brought a terrible darkness and evil feeling over the house that we were in that lasted for some time afterwards. And I could give many other experiences, but those are the kind of experiences you simply can't argue with. I saw them. And even if someone unfortunately tried to make the argument that I'm not in my right mind, and that's why I saw them, there were four other people sitting there who saw the very same thing. Not a one of us had been drinking or doing any kind of drugs or anything else and were completely wide awake and saw this occur. But unfortunately, when somebody has so biased and prejudiced their minds against the possibility of something being true because they're so convinced it's not true, because they haven't experienced it or because they simply have ignored or overwritten Bible verses that seem to state it, There is no evidence, there is no witness that is ever going to be good enough, biblical, historical, experiential, or otherwise, that will ever be good enough for them to accept it as evidence. That's why it becomes just a circular argument for someone to say, give me a verse in the Bible that states this, or describes this, or give me the evidence for why you believe it. I can give endless evidence, as I've been doing in these sessions. But it won't matter to somebody if they are determined that no evidence is good enough. And some people are simply that way when it comes to their doctrine. It would not matter how clear the Bible speaks. They're not going to accept it because it doesn't agree with whatever view that they've been holding on to or been passed down to them or indoctrinated into their mind. Some people will not accept anything as evidence, no matter how obvious it is true, that contradicts their preconceptions. We have got to be able to become free of the prison of our preconceptions and look at what the Bible really says what is really occurring, what the language really means, not what we want it to mean, 
not what we're forcing upon its meaning and not what we're allegorizing it into meaning that may or may not be its intent, but what it actually means, what it actually says, and only within the range of what is rationally, linguistically, and biblically possible. This will be the last class we'll have on evil spirits in this series, but we could say much more about it, talk about many more experiences, go through things verse by verse, but that's not my intent. My intent is just to demonstrate some of the key evidences for why it's almost impossible to argue against the belief that evil spirits are supernatural entities. Let me wrap up this class by going over some of the things we've talked about and making just a few final points. First of all, nearly all of my personal experiences, some of which I referred to, where I felt some malignant threat or an evil influence to do moral evil or to leave the Lord, occurred during the time when I was a young person who was out of church. I had left God's covering, and I believe he allowed me to experience some of those things as a direct result of withdrawing his barrier of protection. It is what I would consider being allowed to be turned over to Satan, at least to a degree. As you see that God does so with both the unrighteous and the righteous, as in the case of Job, and when he does, at times he puts parameters on what he will allow Satan to do to an individual. And in my case, no matter how much I went through, I was not destroyed. God certainly protected me from destruction, even though I was living outside of his covering. And I do not believe God was personally directing these evil entities that I was referring to. He may have been permitting them to do what they were doing to me, but I don't think that it was his will that they be sent to try to convince me to separate myself from him forever. And that is the feeling that I got from them. And of course, I don't believe, as I've said, that they were good angels. In every case, there was a terrible feeling of malice and moral evil. Almost none of the experiences I had, and I only gave a couple, could possibly be described as things intended to draw me closer to God cause me to repent or return to a relationship with him, or even to scare me back on the right path. Because most of them involved an attempt to pull me away from God, from belief in him, from the comfort of his presence, or even influence me to think or do something morally evil. It is my personal belief, though I believe it's supported by the scripture as well, that God can permit evil spirits to act in ways that might seem detrimental. And they might even think what they're doing is detrimental to his purpose when the end result will be to get his children's attention and cause them to realize that they're in danger outside of a right relationship with him. On the other hand, I also think he can allow, permit, a persistent condition, persecution, or oppression of some kind to occur, like I believe he did with Paul in allowing the messenger of Satan to be present, in whatever way that it was, to keep Paul humble. And there are other motives as well. I've also experienced evil presences and manifestations when I was in a right relationship with the Lord when I was among his people, in church, doing my best to serve him. Though generally they have been much less in occurrence and very different in feeling. Even when dealing with something that I believe was an evil spirit very directly, in times when I have been in a right relationship with the Lord, it's felt as if a barrier was present between me and whoever or whatever was being affected by that evil spirit or whatever the evil spirit was trying to do towards me. And though I could tangibly feel the evil present, I did not feel threatened directly or in any way fearful of that evil spirit. As a pastor, I've had to deal with a number of these types of conditions, and they have carried a very different feeling than I had when I was a young person outside of the church and outside of the covering of God. Outside of the many, in my view, biblically clear and consistent evidences, like Jesus talking to evil spirits as if they're separate from the person, cast them out in other places and creatures, and so on and so on, 
as well as biblically linguistic evidences, like the actual meanings of these Greek words, like the word demon, and the very fact that the Spirit inspired that particular word when it could have used something different if it didn't intend to be referring to spirit entities, and the fact that spirits and devils, or demons, are referred to as synonymous in the Scripture, and that demons are, especially at this period, used to refer to a supernatural entity that causes issues, not the issues themselves, I would argue that there is overwhelming evidence for the view that we hold and against the opposite view. And the entire claim that what many, many of us have experienced as actual entities who are external to us, who are evil spirits, must either be liars, since we would have to be making false claims, or lunatics, since we'd all have to be mentally or emotionally deranged, supposedly by our own evil human spirit, to the degree that we're completely certain there was something tangible present when it was all just in our head, which is even more ridiculous when you consider that sometimes it's multiple people that saw or experienced something. Those are the kind of arguments that need to cease being made because they obviously begin to fall apart under just simple examination. When you see that somebody is obviously in their right mind, somebody is obviously clear thinking, and obviously did have an experience of some kind with something that was not good and that was supernatural. So we need to be careful to think about the repercussions of some of our beliefs and how slanderous they might be to others who we essentially are claiming are liars or lunatics because they believe in the existence of evil spirits when they have more evidence for that belief than you have evidence against it. It might sound reasonable to someone who hasn't really studied the Hebrew or the Greek, hasn't honestly looked at the most ancient historical beliefs of the Jews, or hasn't had any of these types of experiences of their own, to conclude that evil spirits are just human spirits, but that is not linguistically, contextually, historically, or experientially viable. Human beings certainly can have evil spirits that are just their own disposition that's evil, but claiming that all evil spirits are human not only is impossible in light of the actual titles and language being used for them and the descriptions of interactions with them, That belief demands a conclusion that everyone who has experienced evil spirits are either falsifying their experience or are so mentally deranged they can't tell the difference between what is real and what's not and what's in their head and what's actually occurring around them. And making that claim slanders the character and the mental health of every man of God and saint that disagrees with it. So we need to seriously consider our position on some things, not only because of where that position could lead in terms of slander like that, but because there is only one of these two positions that is actually based on what the original language means, what the oldest historical beliefs of the ancient Jews were, and on millions of examples of experiential evidence as well. 